0: Well, one of the things I enjoy as a parent is looking at different drawings that my kids do of different things. But I think our favorite thing to look at is drawings, pictures that they do of our family. And so we like to kind of decipher what's going on in the picture and who is who in the picture. But there's one person, if you look at any drawing of our family that our kids have done, that there's no debate who it is. And that person is me. There's two reasons. One, I'm always significantly bigger than everybody else in the picture, and I also have significantly less hair than anybody else in the picture. Now, don't get me wrong, these pictures of me are not perfect representations of what I actually look like, but there's no question that that's me on the page. And so today we're gonna look at a passage where an image of somebody caused a lot of controversy and debate And jesus has to jump in and kind of get things straightened out as we jump into today's passage i want to remind you that there were different groups of people in the new testament that weren't big fans of jesus but none more so than the pharisees see they saw jesus as a threat to their religious and political power and they wanted to get him out of the picture Um, any way that they possibly could. And so in order to stop Jesus, what they did was they'd publicly approach him with a series of questions designed to trap him and try and get him in some kind of trouble. And today we're going to look at one of the first questions that they posed to Jesus. So let's go ahead and jump into Matthew 22. We're going to look at verses 15 through 22, but we're going to read verses 15 through 17 right now. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they could entangle him, that's Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, Matthew tells us right off the bat that this question is not one of genuine curiosity. It's not one where they're really trying to learn anything. It was to entangle or trap Jesus in his words. They were trying to get him to say something that would get him in trouble in one way or another. See, the Jewish religious leaders, uh, they did not have the legal power to get rid of Jesus on their own. So they knew that there was only one of two ways that they could get Jesus off the scene. One, they could try and get him in trouble with the Roman authorities, or number two, they could try and get the crowd, the people that were following him to turn against him uh, because of something that he did or something that he said. So the Pharisees get together and they talk and they debate and they scheme and they try and come up with a way to get Jesus into some trouble. They knew enough about Jesus by now to know they couldn't come at him with some half-baked scheme. They had to have something good in order to trip him up. So they decided to ask Jesus about taxes. Now, it wasn't just taxes in general. It was one particular tax that they had in mind. See, the Jews had been under Roman, Roman rule for approximately 100 years at this point. And this is not something that the Jews were happy about. Most Jews were very opposed to Roman rule. They remembered the promises that God had given to them as a people, that they would come in and they would um, rule over the land of Canaan, the promised land. But because of their disobedience, God had allowed different foreign nations to come in and take over. And at this point in history, the Romans were the ones that were in charge. Now, on the other hand, there was a small group of Jews that reacted differently. They kind of accepted the Roman rule. Uh, They kind of just went along with it and they tried to even benefit from it the best that they could. Most of the time, this small group would lean toward Rome. They would align with the state um, to try and benefit themselves. Their name was the Herodians. So you might imagine that the Pharisees and the Herodians were not on the same page most of the time. The Pharisees staunchly opposed the Roman rule. Um, They would only align themselves with Rome when it came to issues of preserving the nation of Israel, trying to keep the nation uh, safe. On the other side, the Herodians were seen as sellouts, and they would align themselves with Rome for their own personal benefit, whatever benefited them. Yet the Pharisees here, they see a use for their enemy. They wanted to use the Herodians' loyalty to Rome against Jesus. Now, as part of the Roman's rule, uh, they enacted taxes on people. And just like us, the people didn't like taxes, but they also understood the benefits to these taxes. For example, there was the customs tax, which allowed them to trade different goods back and forth and make a profit from those. And they also knew that some of the taxes made the roads um, in the Roman Empire that allowed them to travel back and forth. So despite their dislike for the taxes, most of the time, they grumblingly paid them and reaped the benefits from them. However, some 25 to 30 years previous to this, Rome had kind of changed the way they were doing things and they had gone away from local taxes and ent- entered into this uh, time period where they really focused on national taxes. And they enacted a particular ca- tax called a poll tax. Now, this particular tax became a hotly debated issue, especially among the Jews, for a couple different reasons. One, was that just from a practical standpoint, there was no benefit to the taxpayer. This was just a way for Rome to get more money from the people without giving anything back. But secondly, and more importantly for the Jewish people, it became a religious issue. See, most of the coins that Rome issued had some kind of picture or image engraved on them. And the Jewish people were very leery of this because they wanted to keep the Ten Commandments and the Second Commandment said that they should not have any graven images. And so um, they really pushed back on this issue. And so in order to just kind of alleviate any problems, Rome would allow the Jewish people to kind of mint their own copper coins there in the region and kind of use those for trade and even to pay different taxes. However, um, this particular tax was different Uh, With this poll tax, they had to use a denarius. And a denarius was a specific coin that was paid to a laborer for one day's worth of work. It was also used to pay the Roman military. And on this coin, uh, on the face of it, was a picture of Caesar, an image engraved of Caesar. And then on the backside, there was actually an engraving which meant God and high priest on the coin. And so there was this religious Undertone to this coin that Caesar was God and High Priest, because in the Roman Empire, a polytheistic society, the emperor was worshipped as God, and so the Jewish people were staunchly opposed to this because they felt that by using this coin and paying this tax, they were giving worship worship to the emperor. Now, this was such an issue that when Jesus was a young boy, there was a man named Judas of Galilee who actually. Um, led an uprising He declared himself the Messiah and he revolted against Rome because of this tax. Now, Rome quickly took care of this, squashed the revolt and took care of Judas. Uh, But that's how big of an issue this was to the Jewish people. And this is where the Pharisees felt this question they were about to ask Jesus was foolproof. No matter how he answered the question, he would lose. If he said the tax should be paid then most of the Jewish people uh, would turn against him. They would see him as a sellout to Rome, and he would lose all influence with them. If he said they should not pay the tax, which is probably what they assumed he would say, uh, he could be labeled as a traitor, he could be labeled as a rebel against Rome, and he could be arrested or perhaps even executed, which in their minds would be even better. Now, before sending out this question as a last measure of defense, they decide they're not going to go themselves. The Pharisees are not going to go themselves, but they're going to send some of their disciples, some of their students to go ask Jesus. And this did two things for them. One, it protected them. If they go out and they ask this question and it doesn't go well, well, then Jesus hasn't really made the Pharisees look foolish. He's only made their disciples or their students look foolish. On the other hand, if this trap works and Jesus Um, gets caught in this trap and he gets himself in trouble, then it makes him look even more foolish for being tricked by these um, underling Pharisees instead of the experts. And so these wannabe Pharisees and the Herodians approach Jesus and they start out with flattery. They say about Jesus, they say that Jesus is truth. And the statement they're making is actually about his very being, that he is just true in and of himself. They also go on and make the statement that the things he teaches about God are true. And then they continue on and say that they want to ask him about this particular issue because they know that he doesn't care who's around. They don't care um, who is asking that he is going to give the truth no matter what. And so... Very ironically, these are very true statements about Jesus, even though they're not giving them in a complimentary manner at all. So they very directly, very publicly set their trap for Jesus. They ask, is it lawful to pay this tax to Caesar? Should we pay it or should we not? Would Jesus side with the people against Rome or would Jesus side with Rome against the people? Well, let's look at Jesus' response. Verse 18 through 22. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a demonarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him. And went away so the first thing that Jesus does is he points out what's really happening here he doesn't want them to think that he has them fooled and he wants to let everybody in the crowd know what is happening he calls them out why put me to the test you hypocrites of course a hypocrite is someone who says one thing but does another and that's exactly what we see from them here They said all these flattering and positive things to Jesus in front of him, in front of the crowd, yet behind the scenes, they're plotting against him. In fact, they were doing the very opposite of what they had just said about him. They declared him to be true, yet they were being deceptive. They said that he spoke true things about God, but Jesus said that they would lead people away from God. And they said that he wouldn't change what he said or what he taught because of who was around, yet that's exactly what they were doing in front of him, and in front of the crowd. They're being positive about Jesus, but behind his back, they're speaking uh, terrible things about him and trying to get rid of him. And I know as we read through scripture, it's kind of easy for us to label the Pharisees as the bad guys. But remember, they thought they had it right. They thought they were pointing people toward God, and they were, they were self-deceived. So occasionally, it's good for us to do a little self-evaluation and just make sure that we don't find ourselves in the same situation, that it hasn't happened to us. So here's something for us to remember. Just because we say the right things does not mean our heart is in the right place. Just because we say the right things does not mean our heart is in the right place. Probably for most of us, if someone were to come up and ask you a question about who Jesus is or about what he taught you'd be able to give them the right answer. We would say, well, he's God's son. We would say that he's perfect. We would say that he's good. We would say that he's gracious. We would say that he came and he died for the sins of people. And we would have those answers. I'm not saying we would have all the right answers about who Jesus is, but probably if someone were to ask you about who he is or what he's done, you would be able to give them the right information. But the challenging part is to make sure that the way that we're living, our attitudes, our actions, the way that we're going about life matches what we say we believe. As we see here, it's very possible to say the right things, yet be living very differently. And the Pharisees aren't the only people to struggle with this. Even in the Old Testament, God's own people, uh, he says, share this struggle. Isaiah twenty-nine thirteen. God says, this people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And Matthew, actually a few chapters earlier, just quoted this very verse. It's a long time human struggle to claim to love God and to live for him. And yet our lives do not match what we say. We say we have a relationship with Jesus, but we don't really spend time with him in prayer or reading his word like we would in a relationship, we say God is gracious, but we don't act graciously toward those who are around us. We say God is sovereign and in control, yet we live life by trying to control and manipulate situations and circumstances to our benefit. So I think we can ask: Do the things that I say, especially when I'm at church or around under other believers, match the way I live? when I'm in a different context, when I'm at work, when I'm at school, when I'm around friends that maybe don't know Jesus. Maybe even it's just when we're at home with our family. Do the way, does the way we act at church and around other believers match those other situations? Because Jesus cares much more about our heart's attitude and the way that we live than just the words that we say. And don't get me wrong. It's good to know those right answers. It just can't stop there. We have to allow the truth to penetrate not only our mind, but also our heart and into our very lives. So after Jesus brings this to light, he then goes on to address the question that they ask. And he asks them to bring the coin or the denarius for him to take a look at. When they produce the coin, he asks whose picture is on the coin. Of course, he knows, but he's just trying to get them to to share this with him. And so they reply that it's a picture of the emperor and the inscription is one that's supposedly about him. So how does Jesus respond again? Well, verse 21 says, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. So here Jesus reminds us the importance of submitting to earthly governments and earthly authorities. Submission to governing authorities is a small part of what God has called us to. Jesus says, well, just pay the tax. It's something that the government is asking you to do. Just do it. Be a good citizen in that way. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this point because a couple weeks ago, um, Steve spent a whole sermon discussing the idea of um, submission to government. But the bottom line is that God establishes earthly governments And as believers, he calls us to submit to those governments. Now, that doesn't always mean um, absolute obedience in every circumstance, but it does mean we're to submit to the authority of the governments that he has placed in charge. And even if you disagree, even if the government isn't going the way that you think it should, we're still called to submit. Please remember that God's people throughout scripture were very often not in a God-friendly government. If you think about the Egyptians or the Babylonians, the Assyrians, or here in the Roman Empire, these governments were not pro-God, they were not um, pro-Bible, they were not pro-Christian, quite the opposite, and yet what God wanted to do was to change people on the individual level, not so much in a political way or a political change. So Jesus addresses the tax issue briefly, but what he's really trying to do is point them to something much bigger. They were so focused on this question about this particular tax. Was it right? Was it wrong? Should we pay it? Should we not? And Jesus was barely concerned about that. And sometimes that happens to us. We get focused on one particular thing and we miss the bigger picture. Right now in a a political season with a lot of turmoil, it's very easy for that to happen to us. Uh, Maybe we get caught up on a particular topic or issue. We get caught up in a particular candidate, particular um, election. And so we're so focused on that that we lose the bigger picture of what God has called us to. You know, in our zeal to fight for what we believe is best, uh, we're willing to throw certain characteristics out the window. Maybe things like love, things like joy, things like peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things that are supposed to define who we are as believers, we throw these out in an attempt to show the other side how wrong they really are. And when that happens, we've totally missed it. We may be representing our particular party well, but we are not representing Jesus well. And politics is not the only place that this happens. We see it even in the silliest of situations. You might think, how many times have we seen at a kid's sporting event where it's a game for kids with no long-term repercussions whatsoever, we see a parent lose control um, because they get upset about something, or a coach lose control. And it's just, it's stuff that we do um, where we're, we're zoned so much in on this particular issue that's in front of us that we miss the bigger picture. Maybe it's something at work. Maybe it's something with a family issue where we miss the bigger picture of representing Christ well um, because we're so zoned in on this particular situation. So, how do we know if we've lost that perspective? Well, I think we can ask ourselves uh, where's our, our attention? Where is our focus? Where's the majority of our thoughts? Uh, Where are the majority of our conversations uh, centered around? Um, What are the things that we're thinking about the most, talking about the most? uh, What do we get the most excited or upset about the most? And if those things are anything outside of representing Jesus, then we might ask the question, have those things become too important to me? The point is that Jesus is trying to redirect uh, us not to get our focus on one particular issue, but to not miss the bigger picture of representing him well. He also just reminds them that since God has put his image on us, we should give ourselves wholly back to him. Because God has put his image on us, we should give ourselves wholly back to him. The word that Jesus uses here where he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's, It means to give back uh, to whom it is due. And so he says, so give the coin back to Caesar. He's the one who made it. He's the one who wants it. So that's fine. But also give back to God what is his. So what belongs to God? Well, all that he has created. So that'd be everything, right? And here Jesus is not making this divide between things that are God's and things that are not. Um, There's no um, sacred and secular divide where those two things are separated. What Jesus is trying to point out is that these things may belong to Caesar, but everything belongs to God. God's realm encompasses all of the human realm. And that ultimately we are to submit to God's authority in everything. You know, with this coin, Jesus asked them, well, whose image is on it, right? That's how they identified who it belonged to. Uh, He said, whose image is on it? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, okay, well, then it belongs to him. And when Matthew is writing, he's writing to a mostly Jewish audience. And so when he uses this language and he asks that question, it would immediately bring the Jewish people back to the very beginning of the Jewish scriptures to Genesis chapter one. And in Genesis chapter one, God says that men and women were made in his image. Genesis 127 says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That each of us is made in the image of God. God's imprinted himself on us, and therefore we belong to him. And Jesus is implying here that because we belong to him, what we should be doing is giving ourselves back to him. Not only did God create us, but because of our sin and our separation from him, he sent Jesus to die on the cross to redeem us, or that means to, to buy us back, to become his possession once again, and that we are to turn around and we should give ourselves back to him because it's to, whom, to him whom we truly belong. It says, give the emperor the coin, but give yourself, give your life, give all of who you are back to God so in a culture that pushed them to worship the emperor to put their hope in the emperor Jesus reminded the people um, where their true hope should lie so as for us our hope should not rely in the president or a particular candidate or a particular party or in a particular result of an election but in Jesus and the hope that he gives us So Jesus' response to this question, it really leaves both of these groups um, dumbfounded. Uh, They're astounded. He's managed to answer their question uh, without getting himself in trouble. For the Herodians, he is affirmed to pay the tax, and he's not a rebel against Rome. Yet for the Jewish people, he said that their first priority should be their allegiance to God, not to the Roman emperor. So as God looks down on us and he sees the image that we are portraying of him, what does he see? What is the image that my life, what is the image that your life portrays of God? No, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be precise. It's not going to look exactly like him. But here's the question. Can somebody look at your life and can they say, I see Jesus in them. God, we are just thankful for who you are and God, for what you've done for us. And God, we do just pray that as we navigate our lives here, that we would um, just keep in mind the bigger picture of who you are, what you've called us to do, that God, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what situation, that we would represent you well. And would people see our lives, God, not perfectly perfectly. Um, but they would see a picture of you and that we would represent you well to the world around us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for empowering us to do it. God, thank you for wanting to use us in this way. In your name. Amen.